podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around the theme of our choice. Chris, welcome back from your summer break. Uh, I'm trusting that you are relaxed and roasted and just full of summer glory. Is that fair to say? He said knowingly. Sure. It's it's certainly fair to say. I don't know about its accuracy. I feel like the second I got back to New York, like any color that I had gotten decided that it would stay in the deep south and in Mexico where I was staying. Uh, so I am back. Uh, two weeks of work have already killed all of the uh, equilibrium meditative calm that I already had, uh, that I gained from the vacation. Um, I feel like it's been forever since I've been here. I forgot that, uh, yeah, I took a month off to do that and you guys had a wonderful conversation with Jeremy Hunt, um, who I think soon will potentially be writing for the site as well. So we'll hopefully hear more from Jeremy in the future. But I'm glad to be back, John. Thank you. How are you doing? Um, I spent today uh, riding my bike and playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater. So I feel like I'm somehow reliving my early 20s. Um, I was going to say, you sound like me as a teenager. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's not really what I meant to do today, but it happened. And then reflecting on it, I was like, you know what? My my life is actually pre- pretty good because I did that and it and it and it ruled. So um, it was and, and actually it's just been more, more fun because my youngest has been playing Tony Hawk uh, as well. She doesn't really have a grasp of like the controls or anything, but because there's like no health bar or anything, she really likes just, you know, going around, jumping, trying to do tricks and then crashing and burning and then being like, hey, he fell down. And then she just he gets up and then goes again. So um, that's awesome. Take the small wins where you can. Absolutely. That is probably going to be about the most joy and levity i feel like we're about to have because the topic for today's episode are the films of mr john cassavetes technically i think this is my pick but when i suggested it you had mentioned it that it was a uh, a blind spot for yourself as well and so i think both of us are sort of jumping off the defense so to speak with only people mentioning his name as being important as to why we would want to do an episode on this guy and so i watch i didn't watch the whole thing but there's a whole bunch of it on criterion so i I did a as deep of a dive as i could which uh is challenging when his films tend to run a bit long (laughs) chris any uh intro thoughts uh this being your first time with uh mr cassavetes yeah i i I think you kind of nailed it uh he's always been a director uh writer uh, you know, in influence that I have kind of heard about, but always kind of held at arm's length. Um, you know, I kind of had a picture in my head of what a Cassavetes film was just from hearing about some of the films um, so much, you know, the the general cast of characters. So I, I know it's going to be a movie probably with Jenna Rollins. It's probably going to have Peter Falk. It's probably going to have a bunch of other people, Seymour Cassell. Um, definitely the two films we talked about have all those people in it. Um, but I really wasn't expecting to uh, to kind of get as involved with these films as I did. The, the, the one thing that I will mention right off the bat is this is one, one of the few times a little bit of behind the scenes for Cinema Duel. Typically, when we're doing these films, 
and, and we're choosing a director. Uh, John, you will typically go a lot more in depth than I will. I, I will typically watch the two films that I need to watch for the episode. Maybe I'll watch one more, um, but I don't generally do a lot more than that unless there's like a burning need to do something. I know you go a lot more into it. Uh, this is probably the most homework I have done. Uh, and I did it in a very concentrated amount of time. So even though it doesn't sound like a lot, watching four Cassavetti films in a week uh, is an exhausting and somewhat emotionally excruciating experience. So it's uh, it, it, it's not one that I will probably repeat in the future, but definitely coming away from this, uh, I'm glad that I did it. Yeah, I feel like... Uh yeah, I feel like Cassavetti's films are best not shotgunned all at once. <laughs> that seems like a terrible idea. For your for your own emotional psyche, please don't do that. <laughs> Whoever is listening to this. In the interest of keeping this podcast episode under two and a half hours so that we don't have to get a call from the estate of Ben Gazzara, I rate that we need to cut it down even further, which is a joke about a different movie that we're not going to talk about. Uh, why don't we move over to our first film for the evening, which is Faces. came out in 1968. It is Mr. John Cassavetti's fourth film, technically. However, this is his first film where he shares sole credit for writing and directing. Um, the movie stars uh, John Marley, Jenna Rollins, uh, Lynn Carlin, Fred Draper, Seymour Cassell, um, and a handful of others. But this is a, I'd say, a relatively, like, pretty tight like small group of of actors um because this movie is largely um and, and i think this is the case with with most uh cassavetti's movies that we watched um very hyper focused on a small number of uh characters um and the i'm going to take a like i'm i'm no psychoanalyst um, but I'm going to take a swing and say that the faces in the title of the movie Faces is somewhat symbolic, wouldn't you say, Chris? <laughs> I think one could make that leap, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the, the movie, this at first, when I said it in my head, it sounded really dumb. But I actually think that there is merit to talking about the structure of the film, which is a... Um, like the, the plot is very fairly simplistic. Um, but in each of the scenes in which one, you know, there's a scene happen with characters, and then uh usually there is some kind of slippage where a character sort of forgets the niceties of polite conversation and says what's really on their mind. And then from there, the rest of the scene plays out in sort of this sort of like almost thriller nightmarish uh quality to it and then we follow some characters as they move on to the next thing and there's probably about five or six don't quote me on that number um uh, scenes that sort of follow these small group of characters as they sort of deal with the fallout of the previous scenes and um and in each case uh again some amount of uh some weird half remark or missed comment uh uh causes everything the the tension in the room to just reach like ridiculously unfathomable levels um 
Chris, uh, you had said that uh, you had a lot of thoughts at the initial viewing of this film, but that got overwhelmed by our second movie. But from what you remember uh, from Faces, what is your sort of overall takeaway from the, I guess, the emotional qualities of what this movie does when you watch it? Yeah, so I I think let's get back to kind of if if you were to sum up the movie very casually, it is it it is a movie that takes um, an excruciatingly intimate and real look at a marriage that is not going well, uh, right? So, uh, and to jump into the symbolism, right? The and I think this is kind of coming back now in retrospect of the other films I've seen of Cassavetes. This is like the this is the first exercise that really is like, hey, this is what I'm going to be obsessed with for most of my career. Um, and the name Faces kind of hits the nail on the head. It is very much a film about two people um, who are struggling against the faces or the personas or the roles uh, that they play uh, with each other against the public, uh, against who they perceive themselves as. Um, it, it, and it's uh, it's it's an extremely uncomfortable watch. So, I mean, the things that I came away with this, just kind of thinking through, um, seeing it for the first time, uh, I, I was kind of amazed at Cassavetes for such an early film. So to, to your point, it's his fourth film overall. Um, it's his it's his first kind of soul auteur kind of this is all me. Um, I, I was trying to think like my first thought was, wow, this guy is really an actor's director. Um, but I don't think that gives Cassavetes a fair shake here. I, I, I think he is. Uh, an actor's director in that he is extremely knowledgeable being an actor himself. I mean, I, I knew Cassavetes as an actor, uh, like in Rosemary's baby and a number of other things way before I saw any, uh, films of his as a writer director, but, um, he, he knows exactly kind of the type of role, the type of scrutiny and the type of things that an actor can dive into. But he's also very much a writer's director. I, I mean, for as much of this seems to be improvised, my understanding is a lot of this is written like this is not he does not make improvisational films. He writes these things very carefully and he writes rhythms and he writes cadences and, and there might be some exploring within there, but it's a fairly... Um, set structure that he's trying to do. And his sense as a director, I think, is really startling. Uh, th this film in particular, um, I don't know if this was, I, th I think this was shot in 16 millimeter as well. I, I, I don't know, but it is extremely grainy. It is uh, obsessed with these crazy close-ups. It's obsessed with this kind of obscure framing where it doesn't seem like he's, fr he's it's certainly not framing in a conventional hop, hop Hollywood sense. So in that regard. This is very much kind of an indie auteur kind of hearkening to French New Wave, uh, which I think kind of was similarly influenced by what he was doing as they were doing their stuff. I had like a, a large sense of like um, uh, Robert Altman. There's a lot of overlapping kind of like dialogue and yelling and a lot of nat naturalistic, I, I guess, the cinema verite style where, you know, it, it's not a set studio thing. All of those things together um, leave you with just this 
really uncomfortable voyeuristic kind of feel, uh, which I think gets exacerbated to the nth degree when we talk about the second film that we're going to talk about. But here, it's really laid bare very simplistically. The the structure and style that you're referring to, it it does feel a lot like little vignettes and the vignettes kind of build uh, as a result of what happens in vignette one. Now you see how that kind of crashes into vignette two, right? So it starts with um, John Marley, who will forever be to me, right? He's the hop, the Hollywood producer from The Godfather who finds the horse in his bed. Uh, I kept looking at him like, who is that guy? And then I remembered who he was. Um, it starts with him. Um, I, I believe he's 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 at a party or something, and then he he goes to visit Jenna Rollins, who in one of her early shots here, mesmerizing and gorgeous. Uh, she's a a, a prostitute. Um, then it comes back to him coming home to his wife. And then there's that vignette where they try to have a conversation and they try to put on the faces that they wear for each other, but they kind of break and fall apart. And he kind of impetuously asks for a divorce and leaves. And then it, it goes on to like a next vignette. It was almost very much half of it was focused on him, then half is focused on her and her experience with the other housewives as they go out to a club and they meet um, the MVP of this film, Seymour Casal, as like this groovy hippie kind of free spirit. Um, and then what happens that night with them while the um, Richard goes back to Jenna Rollins and, and has a different experience there. And then it all kind of culminates with them meeting up again at the end. And, and is there a resolution or is there not a resolution to what their marriage is going to be? It's such a weird, again, like really intense experience to see, I, th- I think for me, Although this is nothing like my marriage, thank God, uh, and nothing like any marriages that that at least in, in my close circle are like, uh, I I felt like I was watching something the entire time that I shouldn't be watching, uh, but felt incredibly true and incredibly real, and and that just I I think this movie uh, just set me up for the level of discomfort I'm going to feel watching literally every other movie in his catalog. Yeah, I, I think with the yeah between the framing and the 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 dynamic between the improvising and the writing style, because I think that is I think that it's both. I mean, you're you're right. There's improvisations within the scenes, but also it was very written. But the <clears throat> like and the, even the lighting uh, the lighting choices to not have everything you know like Hollywood lit um, in, in, in traditional ways it does give you very much the feeling that like you're not, yeah, you're not really supposed to be seeing this. Um, um, you, you talked about uh, Seymour Cassell being the, the MVP of the movie. And I would like to offer a challenger um, for my money. I think Jenna Rollins actually steals this movie. Um, and especially this, like, so she's in the, she's in the first section with, um, uh, Mr. Marley and, uh, and his friend, there's people sort of drop, like dropping their faces, so to speak, um, like all over this movie. But a lot of the, a lot of the like niceties get dropped at Jenna Rollins. And so she being in the position that she's in, um, at the beginning of the movie. And then also when, uh, uh marley comes back to uh try and hang out with her while she's with some uh some other folks um 
the the number of times that uh in, and again this isn't only about shitty men but there are a lot of shitty men in this movie and in a lot of uh cassavetti stuff uh more generally and the way that she the way that jenna rollins has to basically um entertain and deflect and diffuse their eruptions of shittiness is is like haunting Uh, it, it is absolutely like terrifying to watch and the way that she's able to basically navigate those situations to me puts like if if, if she's uh if seymour's excels like the mvp then she's like gotta be number two this is a weird thing so tell me if you experience the same I, I think i know we've watched all the same films i watched four films of cassavetti i think you watched at least five maybe six um I w- again, this was my first Cassavetes film. So I left with like, holy crap, this kind of blew my mind. I, I can't believe he's talking about these things and that he's looking at these, you know, personas and, and, and the roles. And then as I watched the other films, I came away with this one as a little bit more looking back at this in retrospect. It's almost like slightly quaint and slightly on the nose. Like to your point, this movie is called Faces. It's about the faces that we wear. It's, it is about a disintegrating marriage and the dynamics between these two people, but I'm going to make it kind of very clear and very easy to understand. Like this is a bad guy. This is what he thinks. This is going to happen. This is this woman. This is what this is going to happen. So it, it I don't want to say that it suffers in comparison to the later films, um, because out of everything that I watched, it's, well, again, I I was going to say it's my second favorite movie, but then I had a crazy experience with the last film that I watched the, the other day, so maybe that'll change, but it feels more on the nose, and it feels more, no, you know what, I'm going to change that. It feels more like a draft. It feels more like a rehearsal for what he's going to do in all of his other films. That's how I come away with this now. I didn't come away with that when I saw the film initially, but now having seen everything else, I'm like, "Mm, this feels like an early rehearsal, an early draft for what he will eventually master in his later films. I I think that's one way of certainly framing it. I think that if I, I don't think I watched them in order, so I couldn't, uh, uh, replicate or I did not replicate that experience. Um, I think that I would probably just, I think I might choose to frame it as like if faces sort of sets the template that he will tinker and formula. Like it's, it's not that it's not there. It's just that, Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this is, if you will, uh, this is the my arms your hearse of Cassavetes that he will then tinker with over the next like several albums until he fi- you know. So um, uh, that's an Opeth uh, reference uh, for anyone counting. Um, but yeah, like I think that the the idea is there in Faces, and then it's just a case of how he um, will play with it, put it into different genres and milieus in other films um though those films are not actually going to be the uh the the ones that we focus on for today but they're definitely i mean again don't watch them all at once but uh i mean at this point i think i'd probably recommend any of the cassavetes movies we watched right uh out of the ones that i saw yeah Definitely. There's one that I would probably recommend the least. Uh, It's not this one. Um, But yeah, I would say 
if, if, if you are interested and you've never taken the dive, I, I would say start here. Um, and then, you know, kind of roughly chronologically go in order. Um, uh, it, just do it at a much more methodical pace. Yeah, do it over <laughs> Give the yourself court, room like, to breathe. <laughs> one a week or maybe one a month, you know, like don't don't. Don't try and rush to the end on this because uh, it'll be a real bummer of a time for uh, for anyone who does. Um, before we wrap up, I did. You had shared a moment that you liked, and I think that one of, I think probably the, the I guess for putting my reasons up there for for Jenna Rowland being my favorite in this movie is is there's a specific moment where um, in the section of the movie where Marley comes back to try and hang out with her and she's with, uh, a friend of hers and a couple of clients. And, um, one of them, uh, wants to go, uh, uh, take general uh, to the room and they in proceeds to, and he, in the way that the f- scene originally sets him up is the guy who's taking general into the room is sort of the less aggressive, um, the nicer right. guy. He's the good cop, so to speak, right? And when he when they go into the room, he just wants to talk to her, or, or rather, that's what they do: is they talk. They she and that seems to be he kind of unloads on her. He like yeah. not unloads, but like unburdens, right? He he's he's talking about his his kid and and yeah, he's 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 uh, he's sharing his problems uh, uh, with her, and that seems to be sort of the like what this is going to be it doesn't seem well i mean if it's supposed to be a prelude to sex then it's possibly the worst one ever um (laughs) but the but and so she's engaging him on this level and then there's a like there's a moment and there seems to be at least some meaningful connection that she is perceiving this to be as like they're having you know some kind of connection, even if it's just for this time. And then when they leave the room, he mussies up his hair. He pulls out his, he untucks his shirt and then starts making a bunch of crude comments to suggest that, you know, not only did they have sex, but that, you know, she was really wanting more and making some, uh, rather unkind, saying some rather unkind implications towards general and the look on her face because it's not just symbol- symbolic here with all the extreme close-ups. These are actually also literal faces that we're spending a lot of time looking at. But the way the look on Jenna Rowland's face as she sort of reacts and internalizes what just happened. The um, it is a it is a small moment that again. <laughs> also, I, I have, this would probably be a good time for me to mention if you are watching this. This is not a movie to have on in the background. Um, the this uh, the 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 wide swaths of everything that Cassavetti's movies has to offer um, go completely. Uh, and, I, and I say this from some experience is that uh, if you have this on in the background, you are largely not watching. Like it is not going to give you any sort of meaningful uh, uh, experience, but the, this, this small uh, moment of her sort of having to very quickly realize just how she's been, um, betrayed is a strong word but like he basically she thought that they were doing one thing and then when they got out of it he completely just threw her under the bus and was like yeah we totally fucked and i mean this is a movie made in 19 
60s. So it's, yeah, so it's not, he didn't say that, but that's the implication. Um, the look on her face is that that reaction is probably one of my favorite moments in the movie. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a section of the film where they drop the roles that they're supposed to be playing when he's in the bedroom with her. Right. And he's supposed to be the John and she's supposed to be the prostitute and they go and they they take those faces off and they have this, they do have this great connection. Um, but that connection is not something that he can maintain in the face of others, which, so when he comes back out, you're right. And I don't remember why he comes back out. I thought like maybe they, they, they heard, I don't know if that's when Marley comes back, <clears throat> uh, but there's a reason that he comes back out of the room. And then when he realizes that everyone's in the room, yeah, he immediately comes out and makes himself disheveled to, to, to put back on the face that he, that everyone else knows him, that his, at least his coworker knows him as, um, yeah, that's probably, yeah, like my runner-up for like one of the best scenes in the film. Uh, it, it's a monumental piece, and and it's all, it all works right to your point because of Roland's reaction uh, and the look on her face, and now how she has to now come out and kind of be denigrated in public when she does come out, and then have to kind of settle the men and, and make sure that every, everything goes away smoothly so that she's not hurt or something doesn't happen. Um, it's just a magnificent, you know, piece of filmmaking. It's, it, it, you mentioned too, it, it's, it's funny that I don't hear it maybe come up in conversations more than it ought to. Um, man, can Cassavetes do a close up like nobody's business. He is so good at just getting in there and being like as intimate as these films are. It's not just because of what's happening. It's because of how he's using the camera to get in there. He does it time and time again. And when he does it on Rollins, who um, most of the people I'm assuming who listen to our podcast, which, by the way, over a thousand listen. So thank you. Uh, that recently happened. Um, but uh, most people who probably listen to us are from are like the film nerds or film geeks. So they probably know that Jenna Rollins is Cassavetti's wife. Um mm -hmm. But, you know, whether it's part of that or they just know each other so well, Cassavetes is able to use Roland's and use Roland's body and Roland's face. Uh, the way that he frames her, the way that he gets in so close, it is... It's astounding. Uh, it's it's it, 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 it's astounding, and I'm and I'm shocked when we talk about filmmakers and their visual style. Um, I'm surprised that Cassavetes isn't put into the conversation more. Maybe it's because of how indie he was and how few films over his his short life he was able to make and, and get financed. But uh, you know, watching these films, he really should be in part of that conversation. And if we want to talk about. Uh movies in which Cassavetes, uh, the apparent ultimate wife guy, uh, casts his wife, Jenna Rollins, in a stunning, uh, unparalleled uh, performance uh, that is frightening and terrifying and compelling all at once. Uh, you could do a whole lot worse than our next film. film takes us um, six years into the future. We're going to talk about 1974's A Woman Under the Influence. Um, 
kind of a quick review of like a lot of different filmmakers and critics thoughts about Cassavetes. This typically comes out around, um, around the top of, you know, his, his greatest achievements. I think for me right now, it is of the films that I've seen. It's my favorite of his, even though from an emotional, (laughs) just, we were talking earlier from an emotional damage perspective, it is the most damaging to my psyche. It is the most traumatizing to my psyche. Uh, but I think that's because like we were saying before with faces, if, if faces was in my words, the rehearsal or in your words, the framework or the template upon which he's going to build and kind of refine his work, I feel like this is the culmination of of that. Um, It is very much kind of the same thing where it is a look at the disintegration of this woman um, played by Jenna Rollins um, and, 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 and the, the roles and the perceptions and the expectations that are set upon her by everyone around her. So I was joking around um, with myself kind of thinking about a woman under the influence, under the influence of what? And this morning I was just around under the influence of just horrendous toxic masculinity because her husband in this movie is played by Peter Falk. And if you only know Peter Falk from Columbo, Uh, Oh, my goodness, are you in for a rude awakening when you see Peter Falk in this movie? He is unbelievable uh, in this movie. But the more and more I thought about it, and especially when we were talking about faces, you know, um, I, I came to think that what is the woman under the influence of? She's under the influence of expectation. She's under the influence of what her husband expects her to be, what her children expect her to be, what her parents expect her to be, what her friends expect her to be. Um, and it is it is too much. This is a portrait of a breakdown. Um, but what's crazy about this film is that as, and I put this in quotes, as crazy as Jenna Rollins may be in the film, and I would argue she's not crazy, it, 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 this this breakdown is, is horrifying, um, Nick, her husband, played by Peter Falk, is just as crazy, perhaps more so. Um, and what I found incredible about this film, basically it is just that. It is the portrait of this family, Nick and Mabel, and their three kids. Um, I don't want to say that it's a parallel to Cassavetti's life, but it's crazy when you hear about this film. Um, Cassavetti, um, Peter Falk's Let's start with Jenna Rollins. Jenna Rollins' parents in this movie are Jenna Rollins' parents. Peter Falk's mother in this movie is John Cassavetti's mother. Two of their kids are their kids. Uh, This is a family film through and through, but I would hesitate to say that this is kind of a look at at the Cassavetti's family or the Cassavetti's marriage from all on from everything I've read, Rollins had come to him and said, you know, I really want you to, you know, can you do something that is, I want to be something that talks about the difficulties faced by women in this day and age. And Cassavetes kind of drew from all of these different sources to kind of create this film. 
Um, so the film is just basically about Mabel, played by Rollins, and Nick, uh, played by Peter Falk. They're the Longettis. They have three kids, um, and they kind of live a, a, a tough economic life. He's some type of a miner working with like a mining crew. Um, she's a housewife. Uh, they have a very small kind of cramped house that doesn't have a whole lot of privacy. Their parents are around all the time. Um, Nick has a very specific persona. Um, he wants to ensure at all times that he has the perfect family and that's what he demands of everybody that it is that everything is perfect and works just the way that he expects and it's too much for Mabel so the movie starts with Mabel at the beginning of her breakdown things happen things escalate um, right in the middle of the movie she is put away in an institution for six months um, and then we are left with a, a smaller section about how Nick copes now that he's got to deal with these three kids and he's got to deal with the 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 peer group in the community kind of like what's going on with your wife is she's in the crazy house what's going on do you need help do you not need help uh and then it ends with her coming back six months later and um climaxes on the evening of her night back and kind of what happens and what's changed and what hasn't changed and um how this family is going to function moving forward um so you know it really looks at the family unit it looks at individuals and the way that they interact it looks at the roles that are expected to be played um and it it completely tears them apart um john i i guess the question that i would pose to you first is uh uh similar to what i was going through when you think about the movie and you think about the title what do you think uh, the woman is under the influence of, and then just kind of what, what did you think coming out, out of this movie, um, about kind of everything you've thought about Cassavetes and about Jenna Rollins and about Peter Falk based on kind of what you'd experienced up to that point? I think that a woman under the influence is a step above in terms of title compared to faces. Where faces is no, this is you know it does what it says on the tin, right? Um, as as far as a, t a movie title goes, whereas a woman under the influence at least asks you to ask the question, and then I think your answer is as as good and correct and uh, and reasonable as you could expect. Uh, and I wouldn't want to really spend too much energy uh, trying to come up with something besides just what you just said. Um, as far as the movie itself, I think that, yes, the, 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 the secret, like, this movie was commissioned by Jenna Rollins to John Cassavetti. She says, I want you to make a move. I want you to make a thing about this. And, uh, apparently it was originally going to be a play, but, uh, when, when it was finished, she read it and was like, I can't do this repeatedly. This is too, this is too much. Um, which at the very least shows Jenna Rollins to be a person who, uh, is in touch with reality, uh, unlike, uh, the character in the movie. Um, and so the, uh, so they turn it into a movie instead. Um, the, I, I think that like, the, the movie's called A Woman Under the Influence. You, you, the movie foregrounds uh, her eccentricities up front and positions Peter Falk as the, as the blue-collar, down-to-earth guy. And they are very different, but they seem to, you know, they... He, she 
it seems like the way the movie seems to start to position it is that he's there to catch her crazy. Like she throws crazy at him and he catches it and deals with it. Um, I think there's no doubt to your point. There's no doubt they love each other. Like this is not like a, you know, they're not putting up with each other. They, they worked in their own way. It did seem like, yeah. I, I think that um, uh, so on, on the Criterion Channel there is a there is a bit where um, Peter Falk and General Rollins actually caught up. I guess it would have been a, at this point like almost twenty years ago, but long after the movie was out. And uh, Peter Falk was saying that uh, when the movie premiered, uh, uh, he wasn't able to be in attendance, but call uh, spoke with John Cassavetes immediately after, and they said like, "How did it go?" And Cassavetes was supposed to have told Peter Falk that they booed. Peter Falk when his name came up in the credits. <laughs> As Which, they should have watched yeah, this movie. Right? So this is, and then, and then Jenna Rollins counters by saying that in the years since then, she's had people come up to her and tell her that there's, that she's had people tell her that Peter Falk's perspective, or they, they more understand Peter Falk's perspective. And I think that one of the things, like there's, uh, it's going to be a, other than just sort of staying as it like as intentioned, I think the filmmakers are looking to say that both of these people are deeply unstable. Completely. Um, uh, and but the 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 ways in which like oh, Jenna Rollins is worse, Peter Falk is worse, um, is I th- that tends like it's. I think the film one of the strengths of this film is that it is made with enough ambiguity that people over the changing times and cultural attitudes are able to there's multiple interpretations of what this movie is potentially saying and i certainly have my thoughts coming into this um but it seems that it's it's made with enough without tipping its hand enough to suggest that like that there's the film potentially contains multiplicities yeah well i would even um add to what you said, maybe change one word. Um, it's not that it's filled with enough ambiguity. It's filled with enough empathy for both characters that you're yeah, able to come away. Like to your point, Peter Falk is, Peter Falk is, even though he is presented as the sane one, I, I love your expression of he's there to catch her, her, her crazy. Well, he, he caught it because he is crazy. Um, but you see the perspective of this guy who has had to, deal with this for so long that his just driving forces. I just want us to be normal. I just want us to be the normal family that I have always envisioned for us. And he, he becomes blind to how terrible he becomes in order to make that happen. Um, and he's blind to see how his actions are so ineffectual to making that a reality. Um, it's, it's a very for me personally, it's a very easy thing to understand, even though I don't certainly don't to understand it is not to condone it. Right. So I, I completely understand that. And I think that's one of the reasons like when I, we had talked about what movies were doing and I'm like, well, I had seen a couple films and I was leaning toward faces. And by the time I finished this movie, this movie took me two days to two and a half days to finish it because it was just too much for me to take. Um, it was a real hard movie for me to watch. This movie has things in it that really struck some deep personal nerves. Um, but by the end of it, I realized like, man, I have, I have never seen, a, I have never seen a more true film about 
how a family works sometimes. Like I've like I've seen films where families are worse, and I've seen films where families are better, and there are always elements of truth to that. But there are things that I saw in this film that I've never seen in another film, uh, and 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 uh, the way that Cassavetes was able to make Peter Falk at least you understood, you may not agree, you're not sympathetic, but you're empathetic um, in, in, in light of, and his performance is, is great. It, it is, it is fantastic. It's probably the best performance that he ever gave. Uh, uh, I don't think he's acting anymore. <laughs> so I'm assuming he's good. I sincerely hope he's still alive because my brain doesn't remember at this point, but uh, it pales in the light of Jenna Rowland's performance, uh, which is un. It's like full stop, unbelievable. How did she not win every award until the end of time? They should have just given her an award in perpetuity because I've never seen someone do a breakdown like that. Um, even the things that are somewhat laughable uh, with her, with her growling and her like her, like using her hands to like, you know, like as, as cat claws, um, Having seen people who have gone through emotional breakdowns and having seen people who have some um, depressive and anxiety disorders, uh, you know, nowadays we call it the, the concept of stimming, repetitive hand, hand motions, uh, you know, seeing her dedication, her doing these things. And it's amazing when she comes back afterwards and starts to, and that stress starts to come on, you start to see her start to do these little twitches and these little like circular things with her hands that just show, you know, the repetitive motion is something that helps calm you down because if I can, can if I keep doing this and it keeps going in a circle, then everything will be okay. Uh, it's, it's utterly it, it was devastating for me to watch. And then when you put that together with an unbelievable performance by three kids, um, the whole ending sequence of um, moving from being trepidatious upon her return, uh, the, the young daughter, is it Maria, the young daughter? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Maria, um, who there's that moment where she's she's come back for the first time in six months and she's talking to her kids and she goes to Maria, you know, hey, do you want to come over and see me? And Maria goes, do you want me to come over and see you? And Mabel's like, if you want to. And then she's like, well, then I'll just stay here. Uh, to go from that to what happens at the end at the climax and the kids – refuse to be held in place and, you know, are rushing to their mother to the point where they're now trying to fight the father, trying to fight Nick. Uh, that was just, uh, that was, that was horrific and terrifying. And I, I can't think of a truer moment that I've seen in film, uh, you know, in recent memory than, than watching that whole exchange and watching how that dynamic played a part. Uh, you know, if, if nothing else, that that whole ending, that that whole last act is and again, I may never watch this movie again, <laughs> but that third act was one of the greatest cinematic things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it, it it truly like made an impact on me where I took a couple of days because between that and the next film, I was like, I need a couple of days. I can't watch another film right now. I, I, I need to let this kind of settle and, and digest it so that I, I can kind of move past it and then think about what I want to watch next. Obviously, there's the there's the noticeable, the obvious violence and threats of violence, like he gets into multiple fights and does awful things that are meant to be called out as awful. Um, the the thing that I had 
Troutbull, even just like following him as a character at a certain point was when he starts to like, like he, the second that something goes bad, he just snaps and makes a rash decision. Like he, he makes so many just immediate turnarounds of like the, when he, when he gets into that, uh, tussle with his coworker that ends with the guy falling uh uh yeah. falling down the ravine or whatever his reaction is immediately to leave pull his kids out of school and then spend a day at the beach because we're going to have a nice time like just just in the kind of like there, there's not a lot of like that's not necessarily a great idea but even if it's fine like you can tell he's just driven by like no 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 i've something breaks in his brain and yeah. When he and yeah and again the process of I want to have a party versus I don't want to have a party, um, just those like he he goes so intensely from one thing to another just immediately that it's there's so much whiplash, uh, even just within Peter Falk's uh, performance throughout the whole thing that it's uh, again this is a this is a challenging movie to watch, but if we it haven't is. said it enough we need to say it again. <laughs> Which, which maybe, maybe l- let's wrap up talking a little bit more specifically about the ending because I, I, I do have as much as I love this film, I have one thing that I was kind of on the fence about. I'm not a hundred percent sure of. So, um, actually, f- in a weird parallel to Faces, so the movie ends with everyone leaves, and Mabel kind of has another breakdown and essentially tries to kill herself. They find her in the bathroom and she's slashing her hand or her wrist, trying to slash her wrist with something. We don't know what it is. Um, and it prompts it, it well, it, it, it's all prompted by um, she's dancing on the couch and she won't get off. And Peter Falk hits her, um, it just knocks her to the ground. Like it is, well, it is a brutal moment. It was, I, I like gasped out loud when it happened. Um, and then she kind of gets herself back up and she goes into the bathroom and they, this thing happens. And that's what prompts the whole thing with, you know, everything going on. And then the kids are trying to push Nick away from Mabel. Uh, but it ends with, um, again, it ends again on a staircase. It, it's, it's weird, like these parallels that keep happening. And I was very conscious of the staircase in, in the film I'm going to talk about for my recommendation. But um, uh, they bring the kids upstairs finally to put them to bed. Uh, Mabel is saying that everything's okay. Um, and she spends this wonderful moment with each of her three kids. And again, it is it is just emotionally devastating to watch this mother now, you know, calm her kids down and talk to each of her her, her children to get, especially Tony. The, the The dynamic between her and Tony is just, it's 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 visceral in the extreme to to kind of watch this mother son dynamic, which maybe you only get when your kids are playing your kids in the film. I I, I don't know what's to be said about that, but the movie really ends. In a similar way to Faces, it ends in kind of detente, and it ends in kind of this bated breath of what's going to happen next. So the film actually ends. They put the kids to bed. They go downstairs, and like Mabel's even talking about, she's like, "Man, I was really crazy. That's that's kind of weird, wasn't it?" Peter Falk's like, "Yeah, it's okay. Let's you know, let's just get ready for bed." And the movie ends with them making their bed up, right? Because they live downstairs in like the living room, because the, the, the house is so small. They have a pull-out sofa, um, and if it was just that over the credits, I would be like, like this would have been the greatest movie of the seventies for me. 
But Cassavetes makes a weird choice, and there's this weird kind of happy music that plays over the ending as they're making the bed and the credits are rolling. It's like this. It is so distracting and it is so not in character with the rest of the film that it kind of threw me for a loop. Like, what the hell are they thinking? Was this put on after the fact? Was it this or that? Did you get any, like, disconnect with that? Did you pick up on that, John? I... We don't have to make it just about the music, but just, I mean, in the ending in, 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 in general, did you also see parallels to like faces and some of the other films? When you put it that way, that I, the parallels seem there. I, I'm trying to think of like the relative likelihood of both relationships, sort of whether or not either of those two couples continues, makes it, doesn't make it. Well, that's the thing. Cassavetes gives you no indication that of what's going to happen next. Are things going to continue the way they are? Will something else happen? Will it not? He is a master at just leaving you kind of hanging like this is what it is because that's life. Like sometimes it just keeps going on and you don't know what happens next. It's just, this is where it is. But that, that musical choice is just so weird because I don't recall music really being in any other part of the film. Except for like the diegetic music where she's walking around with the radio the first time she's kind of home alone and the one guy on the crew who's always singing opera like there are those moments but the devastation of watching this movie uh, may have made me not actually notice that the music I was just a little bit stunned let's just say <laughs> I was uh, to even too. really pick to, to pick up on on that particular uh, choice there there could be a thing he's going for but it doesn't seem like it sort of you're right I don't think it fits with with the t- like is because it's if it's meant to be like ironic or something like the movie doesn't really sort of exist on that sort of level uh, or the rest of the movie doesn't really traffic in that kind of um clever winking any kind of thing so yeah i i got nothing for you (laughs) go back and watch the very very end just just watch the credit part and tell me what you think of the music offline All right, so for recommendations, I'm going to go first this week. Uh, I've got a real quick one, and then we'll spend a little bit more time on the second one. So uh, for the first time in approximately three years, last week, I went back to the cinemas. Um, And it's interesting to figure out kind of what what kind of film took, you know, was able to get me to leave my house, to leave my self-imposed kind of quarantine still and get back to the multiplex. Uh, and that film was Jordan Peele's Nope, uh, which I will simply say, because I definitely don't want to go into spoilers, it is definitely a Jordan Peele film. It is a film that uh, takes genre and uses genre as a launching pad to talk about other things. Uh, this one, if you've seen the, the trailers, is ostensibly about uh, a couple of people who have an experience with a UFO uh, and what happens when they decide to kind of chase it down uh, for various reasons. Um, it it was uh, I I will say as a theatrical ex- bleh, I will say as a theatrical experience, John, it was fantastic. Uh, if you're a fan of Jordan Peele. I think you will definitely dig it. Uh, It's his most accessible film. Um, So Get Out and Us, um, 
the, the way that I was talking about it, I, I went with my, my brother and we were talking about it afterwards. Get Out is kind of, it's like the faces. It's like, hey, this is Jordan Peele and this is what Jordan Peele does. He does horror and he uses it as a commentary on social criticism, you know, um, whether it's around, um, in the case of Get Out, like you know, white people go opting black people quite literally, uh, not just their 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 customs and their traditions, but literally their bodies uh, with brain swapping. Spoiler: If you haven't seen Get Out, but it's an old movie, go see Get Out if you haven't. Right, Us, um, very different. Us is much more terrifying. Us, uh, us to me is his scariest film. Um, I'm still not a hundred percent sure what that film is about. Um, but it definitely has themes again of, uh, of with the tethered and, um, doppelgangers and kind of some of the duplicitous things that happen there. This is much more, um, this is much more, I want to play in the same, kind of fields that Spielberg played in in the late 70s. So it's not new Spielberg. It's Close Encounters Spielberg and Jaws Spielberg, where it is scary and it is terrifying, and it has big ideas and kind of broad set pieces. Um, but it still tells a story. It tells a, sp- a story about the black filmmaking experience and the black Hollywood experience. Um, and it talks about a lot of other things as well, but it is a lot of fun. Um, I will say, however, that uh, for the first time in three years, going to see a movie, four days later, I came down with a sinus infection and an ear infection. <laughs> thank, thank goodness it wasn't COVID, uh, but I don't know if I'll be going back to the theater again anytime soon. Um, it, but it was, for uh, my first theatrical experience back, it was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Uh, so recommended if you're a Jordan Peele fan or if you're just a science fiction fan. It does have kind of a twist. The twist isn't like a super twist like the other ones, but it's pretty fun uh, and it's really in, 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 in bleh, it's really enjoyable to watch. What I really want to talk about is uh, my next recommendation, which for some reason I was just a glutton for punishment. And even though we had kind of settled on faces and a woman under the influence because you had seen it and it was going to be one of your top choices as a pick. I went and watched 1977's opening night um, starring I don't want to shock you, but it stars Jenna Rollins. Um, it also stars a ton of people um, that are typically in Cassavetti's films. Um, ben Gazzara is the co-star in this. We didn't talk about him, but he's the star of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which I, I believe both of us watched. Um, and shocker again, this deals with a lot of the same th- themes. It. Um, what's interesting is this is similar to Jordan Peele, which is why I wanted to put these two together, Cassavetes does dabble in genre every once in a while. So we didn't talk about um, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, but The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is his stab at noir. Um, this is kind of his stab at a horror film. And it's really interesting how it works. So it's about um, Jenna Rollins plays an um, actress uh, and my brain is uh, Myrtle Gordon, uh, a very famous uh, actress of the stage. And uh, they're rehearsing for a new play uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, she comes out one night and they're all the adoring fans are there. And there's this one young woman who is like frantic in her adoration of Myrtle. Um, and Myrtle is just, yep, that, that's great. Hey, you got to really let go of me. You're on kind of tight. What's your name? You know, and she tries to talk to her and the 
woman follows them to the car as they get into the limo and drive off. And as they're driving away, this crazy young fan is in the street, gets hit by a car and dies. And uh, that kind of starts this spiral for Myrtle um, as she rehearses for a play, a play that's about aging, about an older woman that she can't find her way in, even though she is getting older herself. Um, It starts this kind of weird hallucinogenic breakdown of Myrtle over the course of the rehearsals up until opening night. And a lot of it is... um, what is expected of me as an actress of a certain age? What do what expectations do these other actors have of me? What expectation does the director played to total sleaze perfection by Ben Gazzara uh, in this film? Um, and she's also steadily drinking. So there's this weird parallel. I, I was reading um, Ebert's review. Ebert uh, was very vocal about the fact that he was a recovering alcoholic um, and had been an alcoholic for a long time. So when he looked at the film, he sees nothing but this descent into alcoholic madness. And it is true that over the course of the film, Roland becomes more and more drunk and it almost becomes this like amazing miracle because at the end for opening night, she is blotto drunk. And that kind of puts her into the position for what happens at the end of the film where she has to act opposite her co-star John Cassavetes. <laughs> so it, it, again, it becomes a real family thing. There's a wonderful moment at the end of the film after opening night uh, and all the people are, are there. Peter Falk shows up <laughs> and he's in the crowd. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich is in the crowd. Like, there's some really funny moments to see the other people that are there. But it is also this kind of horror film as Myrtle keeps seeing the ghost of the dead girl, um, sometimes attacking her, sometimes criticizing her. And and it becomes this kind of meditation on age and on, you know, how you are supposed to be at a certain point and what you're supposed to get out of it. Um, I was saying to to you, John, when we were, I I, I was texting you through the movie and I'm like, ah, you know, I think I'm going to go through, um, I think let's do faces at, at and a woman because this movie isn't engaging me. Uh, and then an hour in, and funny enough, the where I got hooked was when they were showing the play within the play. And it's the scene where Myrtle first comes into the room to see her, her, her former husband with all the kids. And it becomes this like angry, aggressive fight. And it felt so much like a Cassavetes film nested in a Cassavetes film that I was like, oh, I'm hooked. And I remember writing to you, I'm like, oh shit. I'm an hour in and now I'm completely hooked on opening night. Uh, And then the rest of the movie just became kind of glorious for me. Um, So this wasn't our choice, but I know you liked it a lot as well. So I figured let's have a little kind of mini capsule summary of it here in the recommendation section. So anything that you want to say about opening night? I think that the, the, the hallucinogenic quality, the spiraling, the intense, like the growing intensity of her experience of just getting like the, 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 the relentless nature of, uh, the relentless increasing nature of what she's going through, um, reminds me of some of my, like movies that I really like, like, for example, like Black Swan or Darren Aronofsky type movies, or even something like, um, The Red Shoes, um, uh, by Paul and Presper, like the, the, uh, the, we're going to just, you know, turn the screws and keep turning. And, uh, it's, it's done to amazing effect here. And 
and I and uh, and I also like the Cassavetes doing genre stuff. It's not based on our choices. It's not something we really got to talk about too much. But um, anytime he gets to do the Cassavetes thing in a different framework, yeah. that's always just at least interesting to see. Like, what would he do in a situation that's not as deep by default naturalistic? Like, this is about acting and so there are stages and sets and uh and everything is lit and 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 the because it is not a typical it's not like a a house family relationship type of there are those but it's not the primary milieu is a place of artistic creation and so when you get those more like what what does it look what does it look like for a cassavetes movie that features like naturalistic acting performances to be about mm-hmm. something that is increasingly, uh, you know, not about something natural, I guess. Yeah. Is, well, uh, funny. Yeah. I mean, because the, the family in this film is the stage, you know, is, is the cast and crew of the, the play that, that substitutes in for the family dynamic here. Um, and incidentally, one of my favorite people in the film was her assistant, like the old lady who took care of her. Um, played once again by her mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I think that uh, of the stuff that we didn't watch, I think opening night would have been my third pick. Um, so I'm glad that we got to at least shout it out for a little bit here. Yeah, um, it's 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 my favorite of the films I I've seen next to a woman un, under the influence. It 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 jumped faces for me at the end. Nice. Um, I have a couple of movies uh, for that I want to recommend as well. Uh, the first one is a uh, is the film Mikey and Nikki uh, by Elaine May. Um, th- this is actually a film that stars Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, and was Elaine May's attempt to make a John Cassavetes movie. Um, and and it, it's 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 really good. And and Peter Falk's like he's much more sympathetic in this case because his attempts to like actually the dynamic is actually not that far removed from a woman under the influence, except John Cassavetes is the person who is increasingly unhinged, and Peter Falk is just like trying to hang on and like keep his friend from uh dying uh in in increasing ways. Um the the stories uh and and it's it's a good movie and it's on its own and the only tragedy really is that because the the stories of how elaine may produced this film which sound a lot like the ways that i read about how john cassavetes makes his movies uh because of you know sexism and stuff they didn't tolerate her kind of experimenting the way that they might with john cassavetes and so like it really set her back in terms of her filmmaking career. Uh, but um, yeah, no, Mikey and Nikki, if you, if you want a John Cassavetes experience filtered through uh, <clears throat> someone else with most of the people who would be in a John Cassavetes movie, um, you would, uh, uh, you would do a lot worse than Mikey. Also, uh, Ned Beatty has this side plot where he's a hitman who uh, has to track someone down and is just completely, like, just perpetually annoyed and disgruntled about the pro- about the work he has to go through to do his job. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, now you've made this an essential like have to see. <laughs> like yeah, I was gonna no. see it anyway because just the thought of a Cassavetes film filtered through a female perspective, like Elaine May, who is a great filmmaker in her own right. I was already like there, but now you've put the Ned Beatty piece in and I need to watch it this week. So yeah, it's, I, I really like it. Um, the, uh, 
the the second movie, which has no bearing on this episode at all, uh, but I feel like we need attention must be paid um, after. So when we went to do our Richard Linklater episode, uh, one of the things that I had wanted to do but did not have access to was to watch the Before trilogy, um, and so in the a couple of months since then, I have finally gotten a chance to to watch all three of them. And holy fucking shit, Before Sunset is absolutely just an amazing like they're they're all they're all good. Uh and we can talk about the relative merits of all three, but like the second one, Before Sunset, is uh quite possibly uh some of the most hot and bothered I've been uh watching a movie it is it is absolutely outstanding and i want to bring it up uh i want to pull a i want to retcon this because we we talked about the movies we talked about and we can't change the fact that i couldn't have seen this when we recorded it but this is our podcast and you are aligned with it and so i'm making the executive decision that before sunset needs to go onto our wall of fame so john i a hundred percent agree i I know full well when we were doing our Linklater research. Um, unfortunately, I had Before Sunset somewhere on DVD, but I, I couldn't find it to put it on Plex for you. Um, you probably would have watched it were they readily available. And I would guess that if you had done that, there's no way we probably would have talked about a scanner darkly. <laughs> we probably would have talked about Before Sunset. Uh, so I am perfectly aligned with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of the trilogy as a whole, but I... So to give you a couple minutes to talk about it, I'll just tell you kind of where I sit with the films. Um, Before Sunrise is an enjoyable trifle. It is it is talky and and vibrant and effervescent, and it 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 really nicely captures kind of young love and young infatuation in this beautiful kind of. Um, kind of trick of it's just one night and it's kind of in real time as they spend together before the train leaves. And there's an unfulfilled promise that kind of like a Cassavetes film kind of leaves you to wonder, you know, what will happen to these two? I, I wonder if let's say theoretically 10 years down the line, we got another film and caught up with them. Um, before midnight, the final film is, um, which I think was 20 years later, right? They, um, or 30, I don't remember how, I think it was 20, um, catches them at a time that is a little too close to home for me because I'm at that age. And while I'm not in that situation, um, it's a great movie, but it's a little bit of a darker kind of, Hey, let's, let's really talk about the reality of what it's been like to be in this situation and where these characters have gone down the line. Uh, before sunset, is like it's like the it's the Goldilocks it's 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 the perfect it's the perfect piece it's to your point hot and bothered like the way that this movie kind of carries itself the the tension not the tension in like a thriller perspective but the tension of like like stolen glances and looks uh it's it's an immaculate movie um and we we talked about once you finally saw it and i and you know the first thing i said to you was baby you're gonna miss that plane <laughs> there is it's just one of the best endings in a film it, it is it it speaks 
so much just in that section. Uh, it there's no way that I not that I would ever disagree with you on on retconning a decision, but I mean in this case, not only do I not disagree with you, but I could not agree more that this needs to be in our kind of canon of our favorite films for the podcast. And I and I think that my reasons for picking the second one are largely mirrored to what you've just said, so I don't feel like I need to elaborate too much on it. I feel like the you're right. The first movie is nice and it's good and enjoyable, but the second movie is where there are stakes. There are actual honest to goodness like if we do this we're going to fuck up our lives. And the question is is it worth it? And that's where that's where it becomes real. Um and the the last movie I from a conceptual standpoint, I love just about everything about how they theorize th- that the the third movie to, is existence to be. It just they just hit the mer- uh, they they just hit the relationship discord too heavy and too often. Yeah, um, it's not that it's it's not that it's off base. It's just that it's too much of it. Like yes, things should be like if you're going to be in a situation like they are, it's the, the idea of like, they haven't been able to connect with each other despite being where they're at for that many years. That makes a lot of sense, but it's, there's just way too much. They're just way too shitty to each other in the third one um, for me to still hang tight with them. It goes Uh, a little too Cassavetes for me. (laughs) I don't need my link letter to be Cassavetes. I need my link letter to be a link letter. For sure. But yes, uh, there, I mean, it does make sense to go and watch all three of them. Uh, and they're all, they all have their merits and their qualities, but yeah, before sunset and the second one is absolutely where, uh, they, they hit lightning in a bottle as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. I think that is probably going to do it, uh, for us, uh, this evening. Uh, Chris, it's good to have you back in the saddle. Uh, despite your uh, despite your health troubles, uh, we hope that uh, you're able to shake those off real quick, and uh, hope to catch everyone uh, next month with uh, with another episode of Cinema Tool. See you, everyone. Stay safe.